Well, let me ask a question here. How important, how important is it that we understand the supremacy of Christ? What happens when the glory of Christ as God is diminished in our eyes? Let me tell you one thing I think that happens. You fail, you fail to live for Christ as you should. Because you fail to see Christ as he is. Christ is a great man. Christ is a wise teacher. Jesus is a worthy example. He's a noble being. He's God's begotten son. But that's all. That's all he really is. And if that is all that Christ is to you, then you are no better off than any of the cults of our world today that claim to be Christian but are devoid of any power to save your soul or transform your life. This is what was going to happen to the believers in Colossae. They had heard the gospel preached by a a man who was of that city. His name was Epaphras. They'd heard the gospel preached by him because his life had been forever changed after hearing the Apostle Paul preach about Christ in the city of Ephesus. And so Epaphras, newly transformed by the gospel, returns now to Colossae and he preaches that same gospel And a church was born. God saved many, brought them together. But since that time, a a teaching had begun to arise that was subtly diminishing who Christ was and what he accomplished on the cross. And it was a deadly mixture of paganism and Judaism. And Epaphras could see that the church was in jeopardy of being overrun by this heresy. And so out of great concern, Epaphras then made a 1,300-mile journey. He couldn't drive this journey, right? This is is a, a, a passion within Epaphras for his fellow believers that he took upon this journey to go visit the Apostle Paul who was in prison in Rome because he needed to tell him of his concerns. And the result of that journey and that meeting was the letter from Paul to the Colossian church. And what a gift this letter has been to every Christian of every generation since. No letter makes clearer the utter supremacy of Jesus Christ. Above all human wisdom, above all human tradition, Christ stands forth as supreme over all And sufficient for all. No one is greater than Christ. He's triumphed over all of his enemies. And he's delivered us from hell's clutches to his kingdom. 
He is sufficient not only for our salvation, but for all of life. And there is no moving on from Christ to something better. He is all we need for growth in godliness and in maturity. And as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3 of Colossians, he says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so this world now in which we are living is filled with enticing distractions that are constantly tempting us to neglect Christ's utter sufficiency to save, to sanctify, and to satisfy us. Every day we are subject to the world's preaching that Christ is not enough. Christ is a good start, but there's, there's something more that you need to be truly satisfied. Possessions, prestige, power, political stability, personal freedoms, right? Christ is a good start, but if you don't have these things, you're not going to be happy. And so we need to lobby for these things. They're not going to satisfy you. You don't move on from Christ to something better. Christ is enough. Christ's work, it was necessary to save you, but you need now to add on to his work with your own efforts. You must do this. You must not do that. Friends, Christ is sufficient for us. Because Christ is supreme over all. Understanding the glorious supremacy of Christ is the key to every Christian's growth in Christ. Understanding the glorious supremacy of Christ is the key to every Christian's growth in Christ. Now over the last uh, couple weeks as I've been away with my family on vacation. I had the opportunity to spend some time in the book of Colossians. I wasn't anticipating it. Actually, one of my sons said, hey, can we do a, spend some time in the Word together while we're up there? And I'm like, spend some time in the Word? We're at the lake. We're on vacation from God. How often does that happen, right? But God used my son to say, can we stay focused on God? Or I'd like you to help me stay focused on God. I enjoy reading the word as I sit out on the deck and look out at the lake. I'm not trying to flaunt that in front of you. In front of you, I'm just saying it is a wonderful place and it is a wonderful place to read the word. I look forward to it every year when I get up there. But this time my son was saying, can we spend some time in the word? And I landed on the book of Colossians. And we really only got through chapter one. And... And my soul was refreshed. I was seeing again the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And so I thought, well, what blessed me will likely bless you. And so as I continue to prepare to start the book of Ecclesiastes and continue to feel inadequate to preach that book, I thought, well, let me spend some time in that which I know will be beneficial to all of us. And so 
we're going to spend a little bit of time the next few weeks in the opening chapter of the book of Colossians, and you can turn there. I want to look at the glorious supremacy of Christ. It's in verses 15 through 23 where I hope to refresh your vision and understanding of the supremacy of Christ as God, as Creator, as head of the church, and as supreme over you. And I'm doing this because understanding the glorious supremacy of Christ is the key to every Christian's growth in Christ. That's my goal for the amount of time we're going to be spending in Colossians is that you would understand the glorious supremacy of Christ and that would be a key to your continued growth in Christ. We all need to be reminded what we should cherish and love about Christ. What it means to live with Christ at the center of our lives and also what we must know to be true about Christ. So, if you haven't done so already, please turn with me to chapter 1 of Colossians. And let's read through just this portion together, beginning in verse 15, down to verse 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless And beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray. Our prayer is as simple as it is profound. Show us Christ from your word. Show us Christ in all his supremacy as God and as creator of all things. And then use this to transform how we live our lives. Bring any unsaved to bow their knee before the supreme God and almighty creator of all. And then cause us to live in light of who you are. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So many believe that that based on the structure and the wording and the language of these verses here that we've just read in comparison to the rest of the book, many believe that these verses were some kind of an early hymn. 
or a creed of the church to celebrate the preeminence of Christ. And we don't know this for sure, but we, we do know that these verses, they capture the heart of the Apostle Paul. And this passage is one of the most Christ-centered, doctrinally loaded passages in all of the Bible. Every generation of the church has had to intentionally resist the, in, the temptation to minimize Christ and theology. A theologically ignorant people are prone to embrace heresy. And the safest way to guard against heresy is to know what you believe with clarity and with precision. And so our focus this morning will be on the supremacy of Christ as God and creator. The supremacy of Christ as God and creator. And we'll be focusing mainly on verses 15 to 17. And we want to remind ourselves of who Jesus is. What it is that he did. What are the implications that that should have upon our lives each day? Now, the study that I used when I was diving into this up uh, on vacation comes out of a ministry called College Park Church. And the pastor there is Mark Vrogop. And, and so between that study, between some of his sermons, um, I'm taking what I've gleaned from this and now then sharing it back with you. So I'm thankful for that ministry. I want to look at three important topics this morning. Christ's supremacy as God, Christ's supremacy as creator, and then Christ's supremacy and you. And my goal is to show that what will cause you to center your life around Christ is seeing the supremacy, his supremacy as God and creator. Okay, so that's the focus of verses 15 and 17. To 17, what will cause you, Christian, to center your life around Christ is seeing his supremacy as God and creator. Right? So it's not just that we see this. It must impact our life. You must be changed by this or it will do you no good. So we begin by looking at Christ's supremacy as God. So verse 15 identifies two things about Jesus. And you can easily see what those two truths are as you read along with me. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. That's one. The firstborn of all creation. That's two. So both of these are truths that are incredible statements about the substance and the person of Jesus Christ. First. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. So what does this mean about Christ? Well, to appreciate what Paul is saying here, we have to begin with the rather obvious observation about God. Right? He's invisible. You can't see God. In fact, God told Moses in Exodus in chapter 33, he said, no one can see God And live. He said, no one can see me and live. So I stay hidden. 
the Apostle John, he sets the stage in his gospel for his introduction of Jesus in his gospel. He, he sets that stage by saying very succinctly in, in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, no one has seen God at any time. So the fundamental reason for this is because God is infinitely holy and man is infinitely sinful. And if man is to see God as he is, then he would be utterly destroyed in his presence. Invisible doesn't mean he isn't real or that he doesn't exist. It simply means that we can't see him. We will one day be able to be in his presence, but it will only because at that point we will, we will be like Christ in the resurrection. But until then, he is invisible. He's real, he exists, but he exists in a realm other than what exists for us. Perhaps a way of thinking about God is that he operates outside of the world that we know as as finite, physical human beings. We know three dimensions, but God operates in a realm that is beyond dimensions. He is transcendent. He is infinitely beyond a dimensional world and he operates in categories of time and space that we can't even begin to comprehend. And this is what makes Paul's statement about Christ here so significant. See, in the incarnation, this God who is infinitely transcendent and beyond us He entered into time and space. And I think the case can be made that the Son, who who exists as the second person of the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, it is the second person who incarnated And he did so even prior to the incarnation when we think of the manger. I think, I think, uh, we can make a case from scripture that, that all of the times when you see something of God, whether it's the burning bush or the man that Abraham talked to, that is the second person of the Godhead. That is the pre-incarnate Christ. Every theophany, appearance of God in scripture, is actually a Christophany. An appearance of Christ. That was his role. He reveals the Father. But now when you think about that manger in Bethlehem, here's the difference between all those other previous times. Right? They were temporary. But in the manger, God who was beyond time and space entered into it by becoming a baby born of a virgin woman with all the respective limitations of being human, including being able to die. He humbled himself by becoming like us. We can't even begin to fathom the depth to which he lowered himself to enter into our world and to look like just just like one of us. Now, why did he do all this? Why did Jesus become a man 
I think one of the most common responses, and it's not incorrect, well, it's to die so that he could make atonement for sins. And yes, and that is a wonderful reason. Not diminishing that in any way. But there is another reason that he became a man. And it has to do with a statement about being the image of the invisible God. He became a man to reveal the God that you can't see and that you can't touch. You can't even be in his presence. And so Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the one who reveals God, that's his role that he's taken on. He became a man, not temporarily now, but he permanently took on humanity so that he, so that God now, God the Father now could say, if you want to know what I'm like, look at my son. If you want to know what I am like, if you want to know what my character is like, if you want to know what my heart is like, all you need to do is look at my son's life. Jesus is as close as we can get to understanding and knowing what God is like. And if you want to know what God is like, you must look to Jesus. Now consider again what the Bible says about Jesus. You can turn to John 1 again. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful statement about Christ that he lays out as he introduces Christ. And he says, some of you will be familiar with verse 14 of chapter 1. First it says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then he says in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then down in verse 18, he reminds us again, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now you again, you see this purpose for the incarnation. To explain the Father. Remember what Jesus said to Philip at his request to see the Father. This is in chapter 14 of John. Verse 9, he says, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me, and you can finish it with me, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? It's almost like he's knocking on his head saying, How can you say, show us the Father? Everything you need to know about the Father is standing right in front of you. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, he says, For God who said, and then he quotes, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Christ. How are you going to know about the light of the glory of the knowledge of God? You look at Christ. You look at my son, he says. That is light shining out of darkness. So when you read the Bible and you see how Jesus is described, the call to become like Jesus is the call to become like the one who imaged God to mankind. When you read about Jesus, when you see him interacting with his enemies, with his disciples, 
with those who don't know who he is. When you see all those ways that he deals with these people, he's saying you're to be like him because he's revealing me. You be like Christ. That is what you are called to be. That is what a Christian is, a little Christ. Right? So seeing him as the image of the invisible God does not stop there. You're to be like him. More about that to come. The second truth is that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And this term firstborn, it confuses folks because it, it seems to imply that someone is created like a firstborn son. He wasn't, and then he was born, then he was. And while that's how our minds may think about this term firstborn, that is not, though, how someone in the first century would ever understand this term. To be firstborn is not to describe you were born first. No, to be firstborn is a title. It's to be first in rank. It's to have honor, power, rights as the heir. My firstborn son, the one who has that title, is the heir to everything of the family. That's the mindset of a first century Jew. And so that's how we understand the term. We don't apply our 21st century ideas to a first century term that was never intended to encapsulate the idea of sequential born first only. It's a title. And that's what he's naming Christ. He's firstborn. He has rank, honor, power, right. He's the heir of all things. God said of David in Psalm 89, 27, he said, I also shall make him, David, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. I'm going to make him firstborn. I'm going to, I'm going to make him be above all the others. And that was not make as in born. I'm going to establish him. This is a positional term and referring to Jesus' non-created quality. He always existed. He is the first. He ranks above all others. He's for all others. He's first in priority. We use this term the same way, right? The president and the, what do we call his wife? The first lady. She's not first of all ladies. She wasn't born between, before all other ladies. It's, it's, it's. Ludicrous to think that way. It's a title. First lady. She is. Has a position. She has a rank. In the grand scheme of things. She's the first lady. In our country. Because she's married. To the first man. The president. And that's all it establishes. And so this term. Is used of Jesus for two reasons. He exists before creation, and he is the rightful heir of all creation. Jump over to Hebrews. You can keep your fingers here. Chapter 1, and see how this ties in. Hebrews chapter 1, <clears throat> and we read verses 2 and 3. Just start at 1. 1, 2, and 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets... In many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, 
through whom also he made the world. He's the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, he's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Same thing. You put all this together and we are able to see the glorious supremacy of the person of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the full disclosure of God to man. He explains to the world what the Father is like. He is able to do this because He exists prior to creation. He's the rightful heir to everything that, he ex- that exists. He is supreme. In fact, He's the radiance of the glory of God. If you could see what emanates from God, it's like you're seeing Jesus. And if you want to know what the glory and the infinite beauty of God is all about, you need look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. So this verse, verse 15 back in Colossians 1, it just explodes with the power and the supremacy of Christ. It's just 13 words. And that makes the hearts of those who know him and love him absolutely leap with joy. 13 words that are why all who rebel against him and reject him will one day quake in fear before him. Jesus is supreme because Jesus is God. He is the communication of God to man such that God can point to Jesus and say, that is exactly what I am like. And he's sovereign over all creation as well. So that's what we focus on now. I want to show you now, having seen the supremacy of Christ as God, I want to show you Christ's supremacy as creator. This one who is the full disclosure of God, who existed before creation as the rightful heir, is the one who created everything that we see and know. Look at verse 16 of Colossians 1. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. I want to highlight the two ways that Paul speaks of Christ as the creator here. He says that all things were created by him and through him. By him and through him. First, all things he says were created. Let's start with through him. Through him, it means all things were created by means of his power. Meaning that everything that is created happened because of Jesus. Anything that is, anything that exists, only does so because of him. The implications of of this is everything that he has made, he owns. If you make something from scratch, you own it. And Jesus didn't just make everything from scratch. He made everything from nothing. And he owns it all. So Christ has created everything that is and all things that were created All things were created through him. But Paul also says all things were created by him. And if you look back up now at verse 4 in chapter 1, where he says there, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, this phrase, in Christ Jesus, it contains the same little Greek word that's different from the first one, through him. 
and it's translated now by him. So there's a subtle difference there in verse 16. Through him and by him. And it's the same word that goes with this phrase, in Christ Jesus. Faith, when we talk about faith in Christ, it doesn't just mean faith into Christ. It means faith in the realm of Christ. Your your faith in Christ, it unites you to Christ. It places you in Christ. But your faith in Christ, it is a faith that springs up from your relationship with Christ. Because you have come to know Him. It is a faith that exists in the realm of Christ and it includes everything that He is. Nothing exists outside of Christ and that includes your faith. It is in Christ. Now, how does this idea come to relate to creation? Well, it means that absolutely everything that he created and exists, it does so in the realm of Christ. For example, we're all inside this room at the moment, right? We have these four walls surrounding us and everything that we are doing in here, it takes place within the confines of this room. And when it comes to by him or in Christ, it means that everything that is, that exists... It happens inside the realm of all that Jesus is. It's not just that, you know, he had this physical body, uh, but it's, it's that his rule, his reign, his supremacy is such that everything that exists, everything that does so, it does so only as a result of his sovereign will and under the banner of his lordship. There is no existence outside of him. Only in him. And everything that is, everything that exists, it exists in connection to and a result of and only because of him. Can you see how important it is that we begin to grasp this and understand this? It means that there is not one thing in existence However far, however deep, however big, however small, however simple, however complex, that is outside of the realm of Christ and of which Christ, therefore, cannot say, that belongs to me, that belongs to me, you belong to me, that belongs to me, mine, mine, mine. It's like finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. Everything exists. Everything that exists has a label. This belongs to Christ. And that includes you. Abraham Kuyper famously said, quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You've never seen anything in your life that God did not create. And Christ is intimately and completely involved in upholding in existence the very things that are all around you at this very moment. If he were to cease thinking about you, you would cease to exist. So would everything else around you. He holds it all together. Look at how difficult it is for Paul here to describe what he's saying about Christ's supremacy. It's like attempting to describe quantum physics to a single cell amoeba. We're attempting to grasp something of which we really have no valid reference point. 
What you need to be able to grasp is simply that Jesus made anything and everything and therefore he rightly owns anything and everything. Nothing exists apart from his rule. Everything that exists, it rightfully belongs to him. And remember what Paul is doing in this book, to the, in this letter to the Colossians. He's attacking the wrong thinking of some in the church that were diminishing the supremacy of Christ. Some had elevated other powers over Christ. Some were becoming enthralled with unseen spiritual forces, more so than with Christ. Like, wow, Christ is great, but ooh, this seems cool. And so he applies Christ's supremacy in these directions in verse 16. He declares that Christ is supreme over everything. Look there, he says, he says, whether it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And these are terms that Paul uses to describe basically the good and the bad angels, which you can't see, that are out there. They are all subject to Christ. Has Paul missed anything? What about this? What about that? No, he hasn't missed anything. If it exists, regardless of whether... Where or whether it can be seen, high, low, whether it is of authority or, or in subjection to something, they all belong to Christ. Everything was made in the realm of Christ. It exists because of Christ and therefore it belongs to Christ. But that's not all. Notice what he also says there. He says, all things have been created through him. And what's the last two words there? In verse 16. For him. See, this now is the crescendo of Paul's argument. You, along with everything else that exists, it was made by and through Christ, and it was made by and through Christ for one supreme reason, to be for Christ. Christ is both the origin and the destiny of everything that exists. He is the image. He is the firstborn. He is the realm. He is the source. He's the focal point. He's the overarching reason for which anything and everything exists. Nothing exists just because it's intrinsically valuable. The worth of all created things is derived because of its value in bringing honor and glory to Christ, even those things you can't see or don't even know about. And if you remember chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, if you've read through that recently, Paul is marveling at the sovereign working of God's mercy and salvation amongst the Gentiles and the Jews. Regarding all that God will do, Paul came to this, this same basic emotional conclusion at the end in Romans 11.36. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And Paul is praising Christ for his supremacy as creator. And so, we've looked very briefly at Christ's supremacy as God. Jesus is the, visit, the visible image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn and rightful heir of all that exists. We've seen Christ's supremacy as creator, that, that all things were created through him, by him, for him. And these are the truths about Christ's supremacy that Paul, he wanted to drive them into the hearts of the Colossians. He wants to drive them into your heart as well. Because you're living in a world that's going to constantly try to tell you there's something better than Jesus. And it's not always a person, it's, it's sometimes a thing. Drugs, alcohol, prestige, power. 
you need this to be happy. You won't be happy without this. And Paul, is, if he could, he'd grab you by the shoulders and say, that's a lie. It's going to lead you to the same desolate place every time. You need Christ. And the way that you taste the goodness of Christ is you obey what he says. You live in light of who he is. You don't keep experimenting with things that are sketchy. Let me see how close to the line of sin I can get because that's thrilling. No, it's stupid. That's what it is. It's understandable because of these hearts we have. But it's stupid. You're messing with the very thing that you're searching for. You're about to jeopardize the joy that you want by indulging in something as Christ says, I'm not there. And you're not going to find happiness there. So stop being spiritually stupid. Live in light of who he is and what he offers you. See, the significance of Christ's supremacy is undeniable, but sadly, that doesn't mean that we're going to respond to what we're hearing right now as we should. You're hearing this right now, but some of you are still even thinking about the sin that you're going to go and do. You're like, oh, no, I won't do that. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, yes, you will. And you're like, you're probably right. See, so having looked at the supremacy of Christ as God and creator, we have to now look at Christ's supremacy and you. Christ's supremacy and you. It's all too easy just to diminish and dismiss what we've heard here. Just move on with our lives. Just pretend there's nothing here. There's no implications of us. Why? Yeah, that was a great sermon. It was about the supremacy of Jesus. Yay, Jesus. Team Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. You're supreme, Jesus. But you don't see any evidence in how you're living your life. See, if your heart gets its way... You know, that later time that you're saying, that's when I'll live for Jesus, that later will never come. It'll never arrive, and eventually it'll be too late to respond as you knew you should have now. You know right now how you need to respond. You know right now what you need to repent of. You know right now what you need to turn away from. You know right now what you need to confess, but you're still holding on to it. Don't be foolish. There is no one more glorious and worthy of honor than Christ. Of all of those who are over you in authority, Christ is infinitely higher. He is the one with whom every person who has ever lived will have to do. Though many will try, no one will escape him. No one will dismiss him. No one will ignore him. God has declared that all will stand before him and they will answer to him. They will be held accountable to him. You will acknowledge him as God. You will confess him as Lord. You will bow your knee before him. In every tribe and tongue and people and nation, he is to be both feared and loved. He is to be worshipped and obeyed. He is to be confessed and proclaimed. And if that is not you, and if you are playing games, then your name is Tear. You're not a wheat. Your name is Goat. You're not a sheep. You may look like it, but you're not. Telling you this for your good. Turn away from whatever it is that is enticing you that says there's something better than Christ. See, you're, you're either going to relate to Christ in one of two ways. He is either your Savior who rescues you from this life, or He's your judge who judges you for how you've chosen to live your life instead. And considering who He is, I want to urge you to, first of all, come humbly to the Savior that you need. 
Come humbly to the Savior that you need. Even though you've rejected Him, you've refused to obey Him, you've cursed Him, you may have proclaimed Him, you may have even been baptized right here, but you're not living like one who knows Him. You can still turn to Him. He won't reject you. Come humbly to Christ. Seek the pardon and the forgiveness that He offers to you through His Son. It means believing that your only hope of salvation is Christ alone. That means your good deeds, they don't count for more than your sins. It means your religious practices, your observances, they can't ever earn you God's favor. It means belief that God is real, the Bible is true, isn't going to gain you any points with God. It's knowing in your heart that if Christ doesn't save you, you have no hope. But if you reject him as your savior, then he will be your judge. John 5 Jesus says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. See, Christ is either your Savior or your judge. There are no other options, and so I urge you to come to Him as Savior. Secondly, I urge you to accept the exclusivity of Christ. Accept the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus is the one that God sent to reveal Him. And he does this perfectly. To know God, you must know Jesus. No exceptions. See, the design of the world, it's the variety that we see in nature, the intricacy of our physical bodies, everything around you. It testifies to you that God is real. And even if you don't know Jesus as Savior, you know God is real. God says you do. He's letting you in on a secret. I know you know I'm real. You can say it with your mouth, but I know you know I'm real. I've placed the witnesses all around you and you can't deny it. You try to explain it, but it's insufficient. But you cannot know God personally except through knowing Jesus. Your response to Jesus is your response to God. Jesus taught this with crystal clarity. You have to just flat out reject Jesus and what he said if you're going to reject this idea. Because here's what he said. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. His response to those who rejected him was, you know neither me nor the Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So if you reject Jesus, you reject God. To reject Jesus brings God's judgment upon you because God's pardon comes only through Jesus. Rejecting him means you stand guilty before God to suffer the penalty of eternal destruction. And again, Jesus could not be clearer about this. He speaks about himself. He says, he who believes in me is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Just picture Jesus in the garden. He's sweating blood in anguish over what he's about to go through. He pleads with God. Is there any other way that this salvation can be accomplished? But there are no alternatives. There are no other religious systems. There are no other righteous works. Jesus had to die. And with his blood, he would write the names of all those who would be in the book of life, and no one else would or could do that. Jesus is the only way to God. He is the only way to be right with God, and you must accept that or you must deal with the consequences. There is no one like Him. And I urge you to accept the exclusivity of Christ. And accepting Christ's exclusivity, coming to Him humbly as Savior, these are the initial ways that you respond to the supremacy of Christ. It's where you begin. 
But thirdly, I urge you to center your life around Christ. Center your life around Christ. Your life was not meant to work without Jesus. All things were made through Him, by Him, for Him. Everything in life was meant to work with Christ at the center. God says Christ must be at the center of your marriage. Are you having trouble in your marriage? A lot of people do. Everybody does who's married. But every area where there's trouble, I could sum it up. Christ is not at the center. Your marriage is to have Christ at the center. He tells husbands, husbands, you love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. How does he tell wives to submit to their husbands? As to the Lord. Christ needs to be at the center of your marriage. God says Christ must be at the center of your children's lives, parents. Parents, you're to bring up your children. How? In the indiscipline and instruction of the Lord. Your children are to learn to obey their parents. How? In the Lord. God says Christ must be at the center of your work. Every day, five days a week, sometimes more, you go into the office or you log on or you go to work. You are to do your work sincerely and heartily. How? Fearing the Lord, he says in Colossians 3. God says Christ is to be at the center of all your relationships. You have trouble in your relationships? Well, there wouldn't be trouble if you would submit to one another as unto Christ. See, if Christ is the center of your relationships, you'll be submitting to one another as unto Christ. There won't be problems there. Christ is to be at the center of your sexuality. Your body is a member of Christ. You're to glorify God with it, for it was Christ who purchased you with his death. Christ is to be at the center of your time. Understanding what the will of the Lord is, it will compel you to make the most of the time that you have. It's the Lord's will that makes you do the right thing. Spend your time the right way. There is nothing that Christ is not to be at the center of. Paul says, he sums it all up. Whatever you do, in word or deed... Do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3.17 So obviously you can still choose to do all these things apart from Christ. People do it all the time. But don't think this means that Christ is somehow optional. Christ is supreme. He will not be ignored. Not even by you, Christian. Consider those areas of, of your life that, that are not as you would like them to be. It's Christ at the center. You cannot be the person, the partner, the parent, the provider that God made you to be and experience life as God intends without Jesus at the center of your life. And I urge you to center your life around him. The more you do, the more you will desire, fourthly, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Be conformed to the image of Christ. And this is actually the explanation for all that God is doing and allowing into your life right now. As the image of the invisible God, Jesus came to reveal God. And for all those who love him, God's goal is clear. He's going to conform you to his image and he's going to use everything. He, I'm going to allow this in. We're going to work on love. Now, here comes the difficult person. We're going to look on patience. Here comes the obstacle in your life between you and what you want. I'm using it all, folks. If it happens in your life... God is supreme over it, and he's using it in your life for good. He promises this. You've got to reject God and his word, not to see his sovereignty over your life and what he's using everything for. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to become conformed to the image of his son. 
doesn't matter how long you have to wait for it. And you'll tell you what, if God doesn't bring it into your life, if he withholds it, guess what? It wasn't good for you. He had other better plans for you. And that's what you do by faith. You walk with him by faith through this life. God, I want this. God says, no. Okay. It wasn't good for me. God, I don't want this. I don't want this. You need it. Okay. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You give, you take. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you move on. This should help you not to wonder what God's doing in your life, Christian. He's bringing difficult people so you can learn to love like Jesus. He's allowing you to be mistreated so you can forgive like Jesus. He's not allowing things to go your way so you can trust like Jesus. He's putting all obstacles in your way so you can pray like Jesus. On and on it goes. In fact, there's there's not one thing in your life. There's not one person in your life. There's not one challenge or blessing in your life that God isn't using to make you more like the image of the one who came to reveal the invisible God. And this is what God says he's bringing about. But the question is whether or not you're going to get on board with that. Here's how you know you're not on board with that. You complain. You grumble. Big red flag. You're not accepting God's sovereign plan for your life. You don't believe that God is causing all things to work together for good. Why? Because you're complaining about it. Help each other with this. Husbands, help your wives. Wives, help your husbands. No more complaining. Just giving thanks. You're at work, God. I don't see it. I don't know how. Thank you for allowing this. Thank you for not allowing this. Thank you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Knowing that it's God's goal to make you like Jesus, that he's causing all things to work in your life towards that good and glorious goal, that's going to help you lastly to count on Christ's sovereign care for you. Count on Christ's sovereign care for you. Christ is supreme over everything. There's absolutely nothing that happens in all of the created universe that happens outside of his control. He reigns over everything and that includes evil. Yeah, the devil's the ruler of, the, of this world, right? But the word tells us he, that the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord, though, it stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation and on it goes. Christ reigns supreme even over the devil. If you should suffer as a Christian at the hands of men, the Bible says that's God's will. It's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what's right rather than doing what's wrong. It may be the devil and what happens may even delight him. Ah, oh, but it was the father. It was the son, the spirit's will that you go through it. So he just used the devil to bring it about. So what? I'm not diminishing the pain or the suffering. I'm just saying it doesn't matter who it comes through because it comes from God. He's supreme over all. Satan is a murderer. He delights in your fall. But the gift of life and death is not in his hands. James tells us, you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. It's if the Lord wills, that's what's going to happen. It's the Lord's will. That's what matters. See, if you make it home today after church, that was the Lord's will. If you die of a heart attack on the drive home, that was the Lord's will. 
So Satan, he may be a murderer, but he is not the one ultimately who decides who he murders. God does. Christ is sovereign all of all of Satan's schemes. And you can count on Satan and his minions to tempt you. He wants you to sin more than anything else. He wants you to sin so much that you ruin your life, destroy your happiness. He probably thought that the success of his efforts to tempt Peter would have sidelined Peter forever. But what does the Bible say? Jesus tells Peter, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you. Maybe he's sifting some of you right now. He's demanded the permission to do it. Christ has granted it. But then he followed up with Peter. He said this, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you once have turned, strengthen your brothers. And that's what Peter did. He strengthened his brothers. There's no question as to what the outcome of of the sifting of Peter will be. Satan is going to do what he's going to do. Peter's even going to deny him three times. But God is going to strengthen him. And he's going to strengthen brothers through him. And that's exactly what happened. And when you look back at your, at the text, you, you can see that all I have just said about Christ's supremacy, it's encapsulated here in verse 16. He rules and controls thrones and dominions, rulers, authorities, because he created, he owns all things, whether they be in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible. They exist through him and for him. So don't let your circumstances, don't let your temptations ever lead you to think that God has abandoned you. All powers seen and unseen, they bend the knee to King Jesus. All King Jesus has promised is to, he's promised to never leave you. He's promised to never forsake you so you can count on Christ's sovereign care for you. And so, friends, I know I'm over time. But can you see how important this is? Maybe you're even thinking, I have not been dwelling upon this and I see where my life is beginning to go astray. Come back under the rightful and only rule of your life under King Jesus. Good King Jesus who loves you How? How do I know He loves me? Look at all these things I don't have in my life. Look at the cross. That's how you know He loves you. He laid His life down for you. What more can you ask for? God has given His Son. There's nothing more greater than He can give. Stop looking for it. Stop sniffing it out in dark and ugly places that you have no business being. You will only be disappointed and you will bring shame to the name of Christ. This one who you sing about. This one who you want to bring honor to. Live it out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son who reveals everything that you are. You are enough for us. You are enough. Let's stop believing the lies of the world that tell us we need some drug, we need some pill, we need some counselor to tell us how to manage our life. Christ is enough. He's sufficient because He's supreme. In Him we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing we lack. Anything we lack is not good. You've withheld it for good reason and good purpose. Oh, let's trust You. Let's honor You with our trust and with our obedience. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.